Hello and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say a special thank you to our online donors that make this podcast possible. Today we are looking at John chapter 13 and this episode is entitled, Wash Your Feet. Since December, we have been going through the book of John. And if you've listened to any episode in this series about the book of John, you know that John plays by different rules than the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. To illustrate that, I want to do a quick review to remind you about how this gospel is different. Sometime around the year zero, Jesus was born. Around the year 30, he was crucified on a cross. While the Roman government and most religious officials thought this was the end of the story of Jesus, a small handful of Jesus' followers began to tell the world that Jesus rose from the dead. About 40 to 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus, a man named Mark sat down to write a biography of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. This writing would later become the Gospel of Mark, and it is the earliest account of the life of Jesus that we have with us today. 10 to 20 years after Mark, Matthew and Luke sat down independently of each other, but both with a copy of Mark's gospel and wrote their perception and their story of the life of Jesus Christ. 10 to 20 years after them, John sits down, he looks at all of the teachings of Jesus Christ, all of the life accounts of Jesus Christ, and he says, you know what this story needs? This story needs some poetry. And for that reason, the Gospel of John is more concerned with symbolism and metaphors than historical accuracy. So for this reason, we have leaned into the symbolism of John's stories about the life of Jesus. And we have talked about the symbolism that is wrapped up in each of the seven miracles of Jesus. And last week on live stream, Mandy Cordero preached a fantastic sermon on Mary anointing the feet of Jesus and the symbolism of Mary becoming the prophet of God. Shortly after that story unfolds in a place called Bethany, Jesus and his disciples move from Bethany to Jerusalem, about two miles to the west. And upon arriving at Jerusalem, Jesus rides in on a donkey, which is known as the triumphal entry and is celebrated by Christians every year on Palm Sunday. After riding into Jerusalem, Jesus speaks to a few people, and then he sits down for a dinner in John chapter 13. We will be looking at this chapter, specifically verses 1 to 16 today, and I have to tell you at the top of this podcast, I am going to be making three points throughout this story. So let's begin with John 13 verse 1. John writes, Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Now it's here that we have to pause and ask ourselves a question. What would you do if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? Because when John writes that Jesus knew that this was the end, John immediately invites us to understand the gravity of what is about to unfold in the 13th chapter. Jesus knew he was going to die and this is what he chose, John tells us. Therefore, do not miss the significance of this moment because this is the message. What would you do if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? 
We have that answer for the life of Jesus, and we continue to read to find out what that was. John continues to write, Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. So in the waning moments of his life, with his mortality breathing down his neck, Jesus chose to get up from the table and to wash the disciples' feet. Now, this is very difficult for us to understand in 2020 here in Southern California. We don't go to parties and have someone wash our feet today. But back in Jesus' day, in first century Palestine, everyone wore sandals for shoes. Not only that, but roads weren't paved or cement. Roads were dirt. And so what that would mean is that the bottoms of your feet would be protected, but the majority of your foot was covered in dirt and dust. And so what would happen is those who had a lot of wealth could afford to buy a slave and have that slave wash their guests' feet whenever the guests entered their home. So to have someone wash someone else's feet was a sign of luxury and wealth. Now, if you were poor, you didn't go to parties where there was a dedicated foot washer. If you were poor, you would go to a dinner party and you would either wash your own feet or your friend would wash your feet for you, which was embarrassing and awkward. Or you would just wallow in your own filth as you tracked dirt and dust into your friend's home. So Jesus gets up from the table, lowers himself to the social standing of a slave, and offers to wash his disciples' feet so that they may experience a luxurious dinner. He does all of this knowing that he is about to die. So Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples, and then he gets to Simon Peter, which we read in verse 6, and Peter sees Jesus about to wash his feet, and he asks him a question, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now understand that this is a paradoxical question, because when you address someone as Lord, you are acknowledging they have authority over you. But in Peter's society, when somebody would wash someone else's feet, you were acknowledging that they were lower in society than you. So Peter asks a paradoxical question, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In verse 7, Jesus responds, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Which raises the question, why does Peter refuse? Why is it that Peter looks at Jesus Christ, who Christians profess to be the son of God, and acts in defiance to him and says, no, I will not allow you to wash my feet. 
I believe that Peter refuses because he has in his head how society should work. Slaves should serve their masters. Rabbis should be served by their disciples. And if Peter were allowed the rabbi to serve him, well, then he would be disrespecting Jesus in his mind. So Jesus is washing disciples' feet. He gets to Peter, and Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus responds with a rebuke. In verse 8, he says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Now, why does Jesus rebuke Peter? Well, it's because Jesus feels that the ability to accept what Jesus is offering is extremely important to be part of what Jesus is doing. There are few who have said it better than my professor, Dr. Leonard Sweet. He taught us that when you are a better giver than receiver, then you have a God complex. Whenever you can give things away better than you can receive things, well, then you are playing the part of God. And so here's Jesus offering to serve disciples, and the disciple looks at their master, their rabbi, and says, no, that's not the way things work. You will never wash my feet because I serve you, not the other way around. Peter has a God complex. He wants so badly to give something to the world, but he can't accept things for himself. Now, this story becomes infinitely more fascinating when you consider the story that we studied last week. Last week, we looked at John chapter 12, where Jesus is at a very different dinner party. And while he is there at the dinner party, he is sitting there speaking with his friends when a woman, Mary, bursts in and expresses her gratitude to Jesus by breaking open an expensive bottle of perfume and anointing and washing the feet of Jesus. Not only that, but she dries Jesus' feet with her hair. So it's here that the disciples begin to rebuke Jesus because she is challenging all of the societal norms for how women should behave and what Jesus should accept for Jesus' self. And upon hearing their observations and their rejection of what is unfolding before them, Jesus rebukes them when he is the one whose feet are being washed. He says to them, leave her alone. She bought the perfume so that she might keep it for my day of burial. And when we consider what John's thesis statement is, the word became flesh and lived among us. What John is telling us is that Jesus is the embodiment of what every religious rule and right and purpose should be. Jesus is religion in beating heart and beating flesh. And Jesus shows us in John 12 how to receive and then in John 13 how to generously give away. In other words, Jesus only gives after Jesus first receives. And this is the first point I want to take from this story. For us to give, we must first be willing to receive. For us to give, we must first be willing to receive. And what I'd like to ask you during this podcast is, what have you 
received. As Christians, we need to be really good at being able to identify when we are in a receiving role and what that looks like and how we celebrate what we have received. I would like to tell you about three things I have received recently in my life. And then I want to talk to you about something that I'm struggling to receive and what I'm working toward to try to be a better receiver. So the first thing is um, a lot of people like to criticize pastors. Uh, There's an old adage that goes that pastors will travel around the world to give a sermon, but they won't cross the street to listen to one. And I found that to be true, but at the same time, I want to push back against that adage. And the reason for that is because I would say that I actually love when someone delivers a phenomenal sermon. Few things fill up my soul and allow me to preach to others like hearing somebody else who just kills it on stage with a sermon. The most recent sermon I heard like this was back in December when I traveled to Los Angeles to hear the great Rob Bell preach a sermon called An Introduction to Joy. And this sermon made me laugh. It made me cry. It was informative. It was funny. It was heartfelt, but ultimately it was human. And it was one of those sermons that you just sit there and you're like, I am in the hands of a master. And he brought it home. And I remember just leaving there feeling like I had done nothing to deserve this art form, nothing to deserve how good this sermon was. And I just remember thinking to myself, I am grateful that I was able to experience that. My only role on that night in Los Angeles was that of receiving. Another time that I received is I went to Riverside just a few weeks ago, back before social distancing was a thing, and I saw Ben Rector put on an acoustic show at the Fox Theater. Now, before the show, I didn't know any Ben Rector songs. My cousins invited me, and I thought it was nice of them to invite me, so I said, sure, let's go. Why not? And I went to the show not knowing any of the songs, not considering myself a fan, and Ben Rector came out. It was just him and one other musician. They only had a piano and a guitar and two microphones to sing into, and they entertained the heck out of me for the next hour and a half. These guys were incredibly solid musicians who could carry an entire show with no backing tracks, no lights, just the song and the message, and they shared stories about what went into the songs they wrote, and it was this moving, beautiful experience, and my only role was to smile, to take it in, and say thank you. It was a gift that filled my soul. The last thing I want to talk about is uh, recently, my wife has gotten into golf, and She has joined me in golfing, and I will tell you, it is just a surreal experience. I never thought that we would enjoy golfing together. And the fact is, we have two kids, Maya and Bodhi, six years old and three years old. And for us to go golfing means that we need someone to watch our kids. And golfing takes a while, so it's like a pretty big commitment for someone to watch our kids while we go golfing. And there was one day in December that we went golfing in the Napa Valley while Kimmy's mom watched our kids. And it was one of those perfect days where the sun was setting, the temperature was just the right temperature, and we could spend all day out there because the kids were with Jima. 
And it was one of those beautiful days that from creation to the people who took care of the golf course to my mother-in-law, we received so much and we were just so grateful to be there that all we could do was say thank you. Those are three different occasions where I recently received an extraordinary amount of generosity. Now, some may react to these stories by saying to me, Craig, I'm really surprised you like golf. Not many people like to golf anymore. When did you get into golf? To which I would respond, oh, I got into golf once I had kids because golfing is really quiet and I love it. And it takes a long time, so I'm outside and uninterrupted for hours. And while I'm saying that with a little bit of a smile on my face, it reflects a very real and difficult season in my own personal life. You know, if you have listened to this podcast before, how much I love my kids, Maya and Bodhi. But recently, over the last couple of months, I have to tell you, I am feeling burnt out as a parent. I feel like I don't have much more to give. I'm not proud to admit this, but I'm tired of organizing my entire social calendar around my kids. And yes, my wife and I are able to do things without my kids, but it always requires a lot of logistics for us to be able to just go hang out together. And when my wife and I speak to each other, a lot of our conversation revolves around logistics of our kids. Who's taking our kids to school? Who's picking up our kids from school? Who's taking our daughter to drum lessons? You know how it goes, right? Like it goes on and on and on. And I'm in this season where I don't feel like I've got a whole lot more to give to them right now. And I don't want to be that parent. I don't want to stop giving to my kids. I want to give them the best life possible. But I'm having a really hard time doing that. And as I'm reading this story of Peter refusing to have Jesus wash his feet, I feel a lot of sympathy for Peter because I feel like that's me in this story. I feel like he's looking at the situation and saying, no, 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 that's not the way things work. Rabbis don't wash their disciples' feet. And the thing that I want to work on going forward to try to get rid of this burnout I'm feeling is to try to view my kids as people who can give stuff to me and look at ways in which I receive generous gifts from my kids so I don't feel like I have to give to them all the time. There's a couple stories I want to share with you. One took place in December. My wife called me one day and said, do you want to go with me to our kids' doctor's appointment? And I remember her inviting me to this doctor's appointment and thinking to myself, oh, I don't want to go. Kimmy, can't you just go without me? Like, can't you just go without me and give me this time to myself? I could really use this time. But I didn't feel like I could say that. So out of guilt, I said, yes, Kimmy, I'll go with you. And I was, I was a little mad about this situation, right? So we drive out to the doctor's office. We arrive there. We get there. I'm just kind of not paying attention. And the nurse comes in. She introduces herself. She gets to my Bodhi. And then she says, okay, I'm going to leave. I need you to undress your kids and put them in these hospital gowns because it's time for their three and six-year-old checkup. 
So my wife and I put them in their hospital gowns. I didn't think much of it, but then all of a sudden, as we got them into these gowns, we put them up on the bed in this exam room. And they were in these matching gowns, and they looked so stinking cute that it snapped me out of my apathy and said, this is a moment. Their doctor, Dr. Lowe, came in, and she is a fantastic pediatrician. She walks right up to them, and the kids are thrilled to see her. She starts talking to them about health. They answer their questions. They are having a great time. Maya's telling Dr. Lowe about all of the medical terms that she knows, and it's just melting my heart. Not only that, but Dr. Lowe takes the reflex hammer and hits Maya's knee. Bodhi sees Maya's leg move, and immediately he moves his leg for a reflex that didn't actually happen. <laughs> and it just, oh, it just got me. And it's hard to describe because you had to be there. And I remember watching all of this unfold and thinking to myself, I almost missed this. I almost missed this. And this is one of those moments that is simply irreplaceable. This story is about a generous gift from my kids. And my only response is to be present and receive it from them. Another story, this one happened a week ago. Now, this story unfolds in the morning, and mornings at our house are chaotic. We're trying to get kids ready. We're trying to pack lunches. We're trying to walk the dog. Things are happening all the time. So I sat down to eat my breakfast. I was on my phone. I was catching up on the news for the morning, and my daughter kept interrupting me, asking me how to spell words. She would ask me how to spell this word or that word, and I would tell her, and I was annoyed each time that she would ask me, right? And so after she asked me a couple words, by the third or the fourth word, I said, Maya, how many words do you need to spell? Now, my daughter was taken aback by this. I was more curt than I should have been. And she stopped asking me questions after that, and I didn't really pay much more attention to it. I just kept thinking to myself, man, could I just have some peace and quiet. But after a few minutes passed, my daughter was moving around and she went back upstairs and I didn't think much of it. My wife then came downstairs and she's packing the kids' lunches. And as she is packing Bodie's lunch, she says to me, Craig, come here. I go over to Bodie's lunch and in Bodie's lunch is a handwritten note with a shark and a smiley face on it. And it says, Dear Bodie, happy Thursday. I love you. Love, Maya. XOXOXOXOXOXOXO. <laughs> I almost missed this. And Maya did all of this on her own, unprompted from her mom and dad. It was a genuine expression of love to her brother who had just started recently attending the same preschool as her. And it melted my heart and I didn't have anything to do with it. And my annoyance was so petty in hindsight. And as I looked at this moment, I realized that this was a generous gift and I need to pay attention in order to receive it. Are you feeling burnt out? Are you feeling tired? If so, then I would encourage you to ask a question. What generous gifts have I received in the past three months? 
Become a better receiver. Be willing to accept it when someone offers you grace or generosity. Because when Jesus sees Peter refusing to have his feet washed, Jesus says to him, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. If we want to give to the world, then first we must receive. So after Jesus rebukes Peter, we return to our story in verse 9, where Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no share of me. Simon Peter then says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, Peter says, well, if you have to wash me, then wash all of me. Don't just wash part of me. Give me everything you've got, Jesus. Now, we assume that Jesus will commend Peter for this passionate zeal that he is putting on display. But surprisingly, Jesus rebukes Peter again. In verse 10, Jesus says to Peter, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. When I read Jesus's strange words here, I understand the story to be Jesus kneeling down and offering to wash the disciples' feet. This action is ultimately a gift. And he gets to Peter and he says, here is a gift. And Peter looks at the gift from Jesus and says, give me more. Now, churches today glorify Peter's desire. I have often heard within churches that you can never have enough Jesus. And while I've heard the church say that my whole life, I will tell you that I have experienced and interacted with people who have too much Jesus. Now, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I do want to show how this has shown up in conversation. So I'm going to tell you three kind of parables that all mimic real interactions that I've had in my personal life. So the first parable is imagine that you and a friend are taking a trip to the Grand Canyon. Now you both identify as Christian and as you're driving out there, you're having a good time, you're talking, shooting the breeze and catching up because you guys are good friends. You finally arrive at the Grand Canyon and the scene takes your breath away. You cannot believe how big and how grand the canyon is even though it's called the Grand Canyon. So you are having this transcendent, incredible moment, and you look with tears in your eyes at your friend, and you say, isn't it beautiful? And your friend says, yes, but I've got a question in my mind. And you're wondering what this question could be, so you ask your friend, what's your question? And your friend says, does the geology of the Grand Canyon support or refute the flood of Genesis 6 and therefore ultimately support the biblical narrative? And if you're like me, you hear this question and you say, what? <laughs> Why on earth do you need to know the answer to that question right now? And your friend ultimately reveals that unless we can help build our spiritual lives, this trip is ultimately an exercise in vanity. So when the church says you can never have enough Jesus, I would say, oh, yes, you can with a trip to the Grand Canyon. A second parable that I want you to consider is imagine that you and your friend go to a wedding together. 
And the wedding is one of those beautiful, perfect weddings where everybody is happy that they're together. The music is perfect. The temperature is perfect. The scenery is beautiful. Everyone is happy to be there. And the couple professes their love for one another. The pastor pronounces them husband and husband. They kiss. And then the pastor comes forward and says, ladies and gentlemen, for the very first time, let me introduce you to this couple. Everyone cheers and the couple walks out together as everyone is clapping and rooting for this young couple to succeed in life. And as everyone is just filled with elation, you turn to your friend, you say, wasn't that beautiful? And your Christian friend says, I wish the pastor would have talked about Jesus more. <laughs> what? Why would you say that? And the person would say, this is a holy sacrament of marriage. They didn't talk about Jesus enough. They made this all about the couple. And traditionally, the church would support your friend and say, you can never have enough Jesus, to which I would say, yeah, but this guy missed the point. You can have enough Jesus. The third parable is imagine that this friend has just had a baby. And you are close with this friend, so you go to visit your friend in the hospital and you hold their son for the very first time. And as you are holding this baby for the very first time, you are filled with indescribable emotions. You cannot believe the fragility of life and also the possibility of life. And as you look up at your friend, you say to them, isn't this amazing? And they said, yes, as long as everything goes according to plan. And you say to your friend, what are you talking about? And they said, well, as long as this kid, as long as this baby accepts Jesus as their personal savior, then it is a happy story. Otherwise, hmm. And then your friend proceeds to tell you, last night, as this baby was being born, I prayed to God to show my devotion to God. I said, dear God, if this kid becomes an atheist later, then I will abandon him to show my devotion to you. I want you, God, to know that you are more important to me than my son. Now, I've heard people share this story. And the church has often applauded them and said, you can never have enough Jesus. But when I hear that story, I would say that is way too much Jesus and you need to tone it down. You've missed the point. And the church tends to glorify a kind of spiritual greed in the idea that everything that we do has to be explicitly named for Jesus. And when I hear about this spiritual greed that church often glorifies, I am transported back to this story where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He says, here is a gift. And Peter looks at that gift and says, give me more. And Jesus says, isn't this gift enough for you? Why do you need more than what the present has to offer? This reminds me of the great theologian Dallas Willard and a pastor of a megachurch recently told a story about him. Now, this pastor of a megachurch was hitting all of the markers of what American Christianity considers to be success. 
The church was growing. They were hiring staff. They were in the black. Everything you could ever imagine. And the church started to become one of the major church influences in the United States of America. So this church was becoming well-known. It was growing. This pastor was running around trying to anticipate what was next and trying to keep the church together. And there were all kinds of meetings and people to meet and donors to appreciate and all the things you would imagine would go with a growing, vibrant church that is experiencing exponential growth. And in the midst of that exponential growth, this pastor started to feel tired, started to feel worn out. And so for help, he reaches out to theologian Dallas Willard and asks him to figure out what he can do. He tells him about how the church is going and how it's going great, but how he doesn't feel like himself. And so he asks Dallas Willard, can you tell me what I need to do to become me again? Now, as this pastor told this story, there was a long pause from Dallas Willard. And after some time, he then said to him, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, the church pastor heard that and he thought, that's not what I expected to hear. And he said to him, okay, what else do I need to do? And Dallas Willard said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. To my siblings, we are addicted to the hurry. We are addicted to more. We are addicted to receiving a gift from God and saying back to God, can you give me more? This brings us to the second point I want to make about this story. We are currently in a season of self-quarantine and social distancing. I cannot believe that just one week ago, I'm recording this on a Tuesday, the NBA was still playing games. That feels like it was two years ago. And when we consider all the ways our social lives have been upended and changed, I have to tell you that this is surreal. And the hardest part for me about this whole situation of social distancing is that no one knows when this will end. Yes, people make predictions, but the fact is we don't know how long we're going to live like this. And when I think about the people of Paradox Church, I want you to know that I know who you are. And the more I get to know you, the more I know how amazing the work you guys do actually is. But there's a problem that we have as a community. And the problem that we have is that we are addicted to the hurry. We are addicted to wanting more. And when I talk to people from this church, one of the number one comments I get from people is, I'm just so tired. I'm so tired from all that's going on. So here we are in a season of social distancing. I would encourage all of us to see this season as an opportunity to free ourselves from our addictions to the hurry, from the addiction to always wanting more. 
I think this story is a strong warning against people who look at what God can give to others, can give to us, and what happens when we say, okay, well then wash all of me. God says, isn't this enough? And our congregation gets things done, right? And the second point I want to make from this story is that we should spend this time viewing our current situation as enough, as being content with the gift that God has currently given us. We are in the midst of a season of receiving. May God give us eyes to see that this present moment is enough. Yes, plans have been canceled. Yes, we have had to change things at work. Yes, projects have been delayed. Yes, things aren't going to according to plan. But can we see this season as a time that we can rest and recharge and appreciate what we have? I think that we can find new ways to eliminate hurry and our addiction to more from our lives during this season. So that's the second point I want to make. With that, let's return to our story in John chapter 13, where Jesus has now washed all of the disciples' feet. He then returns to the table in verse 12 with these words. After he had washed their feet, had put on this robe, and had returned to the table, Jesus said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. In these words to his disciples, Jesus tells them, this is what I want you to do. Wash one another's feet. And if you think that you are in a higher social standing than someone else, then lower yourself to a lower social standing and discover that you are on equal footing. And with the way that John sets up this story by telling us that Jesus knew he was about to die, John is essentially telling us that this image of Jesus kneeling before his disciples, lowering himself to the social standing of a slave, is ultimately what Christianity is all about. Foot washing is Christianity. And this is what we give to the world. Now, none of the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, record that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Instead, for them, the central message of the Gospel is the communion bread and the communion cup. But John doesn't even mention communion in his Gospel. Instead, it's much more important for him that Christians take away this image of foot washing, now, a lot of Christians today have interpreted Jesus washing his disciples' feet as Jesus serving his disciples. I couldn't agree more. And so when it talks about what we are supposed to do in the world, we are called to serve the world. And if you want to get serious about serving the world right now, if you want to serve the community of Redlands, here's what you can do. 
The best way that you can serve Redlands is social distancing and staying home. That right now is how we care for the elderly, how we care for the sick, how we help those who are in healthcare who are about to be slammed with overtime hours and work extremely long shifts. This is how we can participate in the solution and serve the people of Redlands. We can socially distance ourselves and stay home. Now here are four quick rules that I wanna give you about social distancing that I have found to be very helpful and easy to remember. The first rule is to do your best to keep three to six feet between you and everyone else outside of the family that you live with. Three to six feet between you and everyone else. Just don't give that space up. Keep that distance because that helps us keep the infection rate down. Number two, no handshakes, no fist bumps, no elbow taps, no foot taps. There's no reason to get close to people. Instead, just give them a head nod. It's fine. <laughs> it's not worth risking getting closer to people. Number three, wash your hands often, thoroughly, and before you touch your face. Wash your hands for a minimum of 20 seconds. And fourth, work and socialize remotely if possible. Now you may be looking at these rules and thinking to yourself, that's it? That's what I'm supposed to do? And you may be insulted by the fact that that's all you're being asked to do. After all, we live in American society that idolizes Marvel superheroes. We want to solve all the problems with might, grit, and heroism and tell the world that we are willing to risk everything in order to save another. We want to tell the world that we are courageous and can be trusted to do the right thing when presented with a crisis. And then when we hear that the best thing that we can do is just to stay home, we're like, Psh, that's not courageous. I want to do something bigger. Stop. At that point, what you are doing is you are saying that you have a God complex. And you are more interested in giving than you are receiving. When you start to think of these things, I would encourage you to remember that image of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and say to yourself, this is Christianity. This is what we give to the world. The best way that we can serve the community of Redlands right now is to stay home and to practice social distancing. Now, if you're like me, you hear that idea and you start to have anxiety because I am a very social creature. I will tell you that last Saturday was a surreal experience and I miss you all terribly right now. When we can't gather in person for church, there is something that is missing from my life and I want you to know that we miss you here at Paradox Church. But while we aren't meeting in person, I want you to know that our church is not closed. Our pastoral staff would be happy to meet with you over video chat. All you have to do is just email us and schedule an appointment and we'll talk to you. We'll catch up with you. We'll pray with you. If you just want to sit down and just <laughs> talk about what's going on, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email. My email address is craig at paradoxredlands.com. Adam is adam at paradoxredlands.com and Mandy is mandy at paradoxredlands.com. 
We'd love to talk to you. Just send us an email. Additionally, we are bringing back our discussion group that will meet over Zoom. Zoom is a video conferencing app that we'll be using all the time. We'd love for you to download it. We just posted instructions on how to log into Zoom on our Facebook page. But we wanna to get to hear what you say about this sermon. We wanna have the discussion that sermons are meant to start. So plan to join us for that. Not only that, but we're gonna be having small groups that meet over Zoom and that information will be coming out in the next week or two. We also have Paradox Kids and Paradox Youth that meet at 9.30 on Saturday mornings before the service. You just log into Zoom and people will meet with you. You can still be part of what the church is doing. And we'd love to still worship to you in this unorthodox yet different way. I tell you all of this because our church is still open. We're still interested in connecting people with each other and with God. And if you have any ideas and you want to participate in what the church is doing, just let us know and we will get you involved because we are an online church right now, but we are not closed. And we are doing this because we really believe that we are serving the community of Redlands through social distancing. To my siblings in Christ, may we have the courage to practice social distancing and serve the community of Redlands. And may we remember that the heart and the image of Christianity is about how the Son of God can both receive and give away. And may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.